Food Buffs, I'm your host, Lillian. And I'm your host, Fakri, and you are listening to Food Nonfiction. This episode is all about food trucks. Food trucks evolved from food wagons during the age of the cowboys, two decades before the invention of the automobile. When the American Civil War ended in 1865, Texas found itself with too much cattle. Cattle they couldn't sell during the war because of an embargo and because many of the ranchers had gone off to the war and left their cows grazing and multiplying. They had so much cattle at the end of the war that the supply way outstripped the demand, and the cattle were basically worthless in Texas. But outside of Texas, lots of people wanted beef. You could sell a cattle worth $4 a head at $40 a head in other states, so they had to herd the cattle to these states, traveling long distances. And this is where food wagons, actually called chuck wagons, came into play. Cattlemen sometimes had to herd their cattle for months at a time. So Charles Goodnight, one of the great American ranchers, invented the chuck wagon in 1866. Goodnight converted this wagon from an army surplus wagon. It carried food, eating utensils, a water barrel, a hinged counter for preparing food, and lots of storage space. Chuck wagons usually carried black-eyed peas, beans, corns, cabbage, some spices like garlic, chili, onion, and some bread and biscuits. They obviously had plenty of meat around, and they could catch seafood along the way. The cooks that came with chuck wagons would wake up as early as 3 in the morning to start making the fire, baking the biscuits, and preparing cowboy coffee. Most people would have referred to a chuck wagon cook as cookie. But there were other names that weren't as nice. Soggy, belly cheater, dough puncher, greasy belly, grub worm, and lots of other names. If you want to cook like the cookies did, you can check out our show notes. There's links to recipes. One of the links is chuckwagonrecipes.blogspot.ca. The cattle driving days didn't last very long, though. The peak was the 20 years after the Civil War. But by the 1880s, refrigerated rail cars had been adopted for wider use and railroads in general had expanded. Cattle driving just didn't make any sense anymore. Because it took a long time, it was very dangerous, and the cattle often lost a lot of weight on the way. Also, more and more land was being taken up by farms, and the farmers' barbed wires blocked off many paths. While chuck wagons are generally considered the forerunners to food trucks, push carts should also be considered as playing a role in the eventual development of food trucks. Both chuck wagons and push carts can be considered as the ancestors to food trucks. Chuck wagons get a point for looking more like food trucks because they were large vehicles designed for food preparation. But push carts get a point for being used more like food trucks, providing quick food to busy people in cities. The history of the push cart, however, is problematic because street vendors have been around for ages as a very natural rather than innovative form of selling goods. 
you can't really pinpoint the first person who started pushing food around in a cart. Even if we only look at the United States, street vendors with pushcarts have been around for a long time, since the 1600s in New York. Nonetheless, there is a fascinating history of street food in New York, even if we can't pinpoint the origins. The people working the food carts were often poor immigrants, and back then they catered to the less wealthy population. The wealthier population, especially people that owned actual storefronts, did not like having them around, parking in front of their shops or parking along the streets, adding to congestion. There were many laws put in place over the years to manage street vendors. In 1691, street vendors could only begin selling two hours after public markets had opened. Then, in 1707, the city banned street vendors altogether, but they were unsuccessful in stopping the vendors. In the late 1800s, officials tried another tactic, releasing the 30-minute law, which stated that vendors had to move their carts every 30 minutes. But they were unsuccessful in enforcing that law as well. Back then, you could buy oysters for a penny from these pushcarts. In a continued effort to manage pushcarts, New York started pushcart markets to gather pushcarts into one area. Municipal records show that the first of these markets was on Hester Street on the Lower East Side in 1866, the same year as the invention of the chuck wagon. That still didn't keep vendors off the street. So after World War I, New York legalized street vending, and vendors needed licenses to operate pushcarts. But pushcarts faced another blow when most street markets were shut down to clean up the streets in time for the World's Fair, which was held in New York in 1939. Remember, these pushcarts and their vendors were considered lower class. Basically, pushcarts have long been considered cheap fare for the poor population, but nowadays people flock to food trucks, and lots of food trucks are considered gourmet. How things have changed! By the 1960s, there were larger trucks selling tacos and burgers, much like the ones we have today. Although the general public now has a much better opinion of food trucks, they are still a bit of a nuisance for cities to regulate, because they are a moving business that, without regulation, would just park at any parking lot or parking meter or on any city street. So, what are the street rules for food trucks? We'll look at two main North American cities: New York for the United States and Toronto for Canada. In New York, a citywide vending permit lets a food truck park on any city street, but they're not allowed to park within 200 feet of a school, within 500 feet of a public market, or at metered parking spaces. The last one makes things difficult because in big cities, busy areas usually have metered parking, so the rules are difficult to follow, and food truck owners end up spending. An average of $735 a month paying ticket fines. New York City's vending laws have been in place since 1965, a time when there weren't as many meters around. The permit you need to run a food truck is the mobile food vending permit. There is a limited number of these permits. New York grants around 
3,000 citywide permits, and they're non-transferable. Those permits have been given out, and the waiting list is currently closed. Even if you got on the waiting list, it is crazy long. You could be waiting 10 years for your permit. Then there's the issue of staffing. Anyone working in a food truck needs a mobile food vendor license, MFVL, which can take two to three months to get. So you can't just hire any student on summer vacation during the busy summer days. Food carts also have to visit what's called a commissary every single day for cleaning and to dump out their wastewater tanks. Not bathroom wastewater, but cooking wastewater. For example, water used to boil a hot dog. These commissaries also sell fuel and food to the food truck owners. Remember how I mentioned that the wait list for permits is closed? Well, according to the New York Times, these commissaries sometimes help to facilitate illegal permit trading, and it's a shady business that's worth an estimated $15 million a year. So that's New York. In Toronto, Canada, the city council amended the city's mobile food vending permit in 2014. So Toronto food trucks can park at pay-by-display parking, but they need to stay a minimum of 50 linear meters away from restaurants, and they can't stay in any one place for over three hours. There's also a limit of two food trucks per city block. With the amendment of the permit, there are new mobile food vending permits that cost the vendors $5,066.69 per year. These new permits let vendors park on curbside locations throughout the city. In both New York and Toronto, food trucks basically have the same sanitary standards as restaurants. Can you tell me a little bit about the sanitation laws? Uh, the sanitation laws are great. You know, I, they treat it like uh, brick and mortars. On the food truck, on the, in your brick and mortar, I have to have hot water. On the food truck, you have to have hot water. You know, you, you have to have proper lighting. It's, it's, the only difference is a brick and mortar and a, and a food truck is that one is on wheels, one is not. And what are some of the laws they have for that? I'm not familiar well, with sanitation Well, you know, we have, to, we have to wear gloves. We have to keep our sanitizing solution on the truck. We have to uh, wipe it down, keep it clean, treat it like a brick and mortar. Mm -hmm. It's just a brick and mortar on wheels. And the same inspector that comes to a brick and mortar right. comes here. Right. You're absolutely right. All right. So how much does it cost to buy a food truck? According to Mashable.com, it's around $40,000 for a used food truck and $75,000 for a new truck. So that's in U.S. dollars. You know, my husband actually builds trucks. When you talk to a builder, ask them, can you come to their shop? You know, see what tools they have. Mm -hmm. You know, because you have stainless on the truck, like you do in a restaurant. You have hood vent fans. You know, you have commercial refrigeration. Hi friends and food buffs, this is Fakery reporting to you on assignment from North Carolina where I am speaking with Chef Ricky of Saltbox Seafood Joint. Hello, hello everyone, how are you? Good to be here, having fun, cooking some good seafood. How do you think you do pulling in money-wise compared to some other larger scale restaurants? In terms of business model, my overhead, labor and everything is minimal because first of all, I do all the cooking. so. I'm the majority of the staff. My cost to run utilities and everything is very low. This model makes it easy for me to manage all my costs because I'm hands-on, feet-on. I don't waste anything. I buy 
smart. You know, I bid on a lot of things. As I compare my concept with a full-service restaurant, of course, I'm going to bring money to the bottom line quicker than a, a bigger restaurant. The downside, not, not downside, but, you know, I, I do all the work. Chef Ricky used to work in traditional brick-and-mortar restaurants. I retired from the restaurant business and got into the joint business. I spent a lot of time working in a lot of high-end restaurants. Saltbox for me is uh, it's kind of like my, my kind of version of a chef-crafted brand. Ideally, what I'm trying to do is start this, develop it, detail it, and then hopefully I can scale the brand. Then he opened a joint called Saltbox Seafood Joint, and he plans on scaling. Saltbox is basically my first entrepreneurial project, my apprenticeship to entrepreneurship. For Ricky, having a food truck was part of the scaling plan. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the food truck? I know that was something that you added later. My food truck is only extension, uh, an additional revenue stream, but also branding and also marketing, but also it's my catering truck. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you were drawn to this? The, the freedom, the freedom to just be creative. The Saltbox Seafood Joint, like other small food businesses, really benefits from the age of social media. People like them, so they tweet about them. People love their Facebook page because they post a lot of pictures of fresh seafood. I don't, I don't have any PR firm. I can't afford no PR. Okay, I'm the PR. We love Saltbox because they really have a lot of heart. It can't be salt box if we're not sourcing quality seafood from the North Carolina coast, particularly from our, our fishermen. Um, there's a whole nother discussion about, you know, what it means to support the fishermen. These folk, um, you wouldn't believe how hard they work. If you're interested in learning more about how to start your own food truck business, torontofoodtrucks.ca has a great infographic on how to start, and the link is in our show notes. Hey, food buffs. Thank you for listening to Food Nonfiction. If you like our show, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Instructions for how to get the review page are on our website, www.foodnonfiction.com, on the Help Us page. Let us know when you leave a review, and we'll mail you a Food Nonfiction fridge magnet and a handwritten thank you note, because we really appreciate it, and it makes a world of difference. Look for our next episode next Tuesday.